a graduate of Asbury College and Asbury Theological Seminary, Dennis Kinlaw received his Ph.D. from Brandeis University. He was a lifelong student of God's Word and human culture, always looking for evidence of God's activity in human life. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of 2 Corinthians. Paul's letter, second letter, the second letter found in the New Testament to the Corinthians. Chapter 5, and a very priceless uh, passage on the love of Christ and what our response should be to that. I'd like to begin reading at verse 14, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For the love of Christ controls us, because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once regarded Christ from a human point of view, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So we, you and I, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we beseech you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a passage. Will you bow your heads with me? Lord, we do not bow tritely or simply out of custom. We bow out of the profundity of our need, because there's not one of us here tonight that does not need you. We do not need what a human can offer. We need what only you can give. And so we wait. We marvel that you use earthly things and human instruments. But you really don't have many others. But we thank you that we know enough to know that it's not us we need, it's you. And so somehow give yourself to us tonight. And we will give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. We've been talking in these sessions together about the mind of Christ. And linked with that, we've been talking about the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the two things go together. Because it is only because of the cross of Christ that it's possible for you and I to have the mind of Christ. You know enough, and the passage that we read a few moments ago indicates it, 
that God gave his son on Calvary's cross to you and me, to me for my sins and you for your sins. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, the biblical text says. Now we've talked about the fact that sin is basically my way as opposed to his. Sometimes we tend to think about sin in terms of the law. And so we think of it as hatred or animosity or hostility or murder or sexual irregularities or stealing or cheating on an exam or lying or, or bearing false witness. We think about these as acts. But those are simply expressions. And let me remind you that you have 50 chapters of the Bible. In fact, you have, what is it? You have 70 chapters of the Bible before you get to the Ten Commandments. Because uh, sin is not a relationship to the law. It's a relationship to God. And when it is, it is when I turn to my way instead of his that I sin. We cited for you that quotation, that reference from Luther, where he speaks about, uses that expression, core incurvitus, I'd say, the heart curved in upon itself. Now, the cross was to set me free from that. Because when we turned this way and broke connections with him, we had no capacity in ourselves to get back into a relationship with him. There is nothing saving in you. There is nothing saving in me. All that is redemptive is in God and in God alone. And so when we broke the connection, there was no way back across that chasm unless he bridged it. And so that's the reason for the cross. He came, and in the death of Christ, God made a bridge across and a connection so that we can be set free from that prison, imprisonment within our own self-interest. You see it in this passage that we read. It's as clear, I think, in this passage as anywhere in the New Testament, and this is one of those classical passages of the New Testament. For the love of Christ, your translation, many translations say constrains us. My translation tonight says, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we're convinced that one, Christ, has died for all, for every one of us. Therefore, all of us have died. We died in him. And he died for all. Now, why did Christ die on the cross? You know, if you were to catch the typical American evangelical and ask him why Christ died on the cross, you know what he'd say? He died to save me from my sins and to help me to escape hell and get through the judgment and get to heaven. That's not what Paul said. And let me say, Paul is much more Christian than we are. Because if we said, you know, Jesus didn't say to people, believe on me, he said, follow me. And he was headed for a cross when he said it. Now you notice what Paul says. Look at it, verse 15. He died for all. For what purpose? That those who live might live no longer for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now I'd like to ask you, when you see the cross, do you think of it in those terms? Those are the terms that Paul says we ought to think. Anytime I see the cross, I look at it and say, ah, there's the freedom to enable me to live for somebody beyond myself and to set me free from imprisonment to my own self-interest. Now, uh, that's what it means to have the mind of Christ. When you see and believe that it is better to live for him than it is to live for yourself, and then you will come to understand that his strange ways are good and his strange ways are right. 
And what you think is power, he'll say is weakness. And what you think is weakness, he'll say that's power. And what you think is defeat, he'll say that's the supreme victory. And what you think is victory, he'll say, oh no, that's defeat, and you came out of it defiled. Because you see, he doesn't think the way we think, and we have to come and understand the cross and experience in our life for us to be able to think the way he thinks. Now, the interesting thing to me in the New Testament is the way this is developed. It is developed in the concept that there are only two minds ultimately to control us. You and I may work at finding a middle way, but biblically, the Bible knows about only two ways ultimately. One is the mind of what it calls the flesh, and the other is the mind of what it calls the spirit, and it is spirit with a capital S, the Holy Spirit. But now, who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. And so my options, the options before me, are that I can be, I can live with the mind of what the New Testament calls the flesh, or I can live with the mind of the Spirit, which is really the Spirit of Christ himself. Now, uh, what is the flesh? If you will read the New Testament, I just think, I think it will be very clear that it is simply you and me without God. Let me correct my English there. It's you and I without God. Somebody. Ann Coon used to correct my grammar every time in chapel, and uh, I've lost that, so my grammar gets sloppy. So uh, you forget it. You, you bear with me on that. But anyway, the flesh is simply, it is, it is I without God. And life in the Spirit is when the Spirit fills and controls me, and I don't live in terms... Of my mind, I live in terms of his mind. And when I come to that point, then I find that I'm free. It's interesting that the word which is translated to think the way God thinks in that passage with, with Peter, to think the way God thinks and to have the mind of Christ in Philippians, that verb is used more in Philippians than any other book in the New Testament. There are only four verses, four chapters in the book of Philippians. If I remember correctly, there are about 24 uses of the occurrences of that verb in the New Testament and about 10 of them are in those little four chapters. Do you know where the other biggest block of them are? Is The biggest block is in the book of Romans. And I, if I remember correctly, there are about 18 out of the 24 occurrences, something like that, that are in those two books. Now let me cite you a passage in the book of Romans to illustrate. There are only two ways you can live. You can either live your way or you can live God's way. And your way is the flesh, and his way is the spirit's way. Turn with me to Romans 8. You will remember how it begins, very precious words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened to the flesh could not do, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, to whom is he, is he writing? Notice at the end of verse 4. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There are only two ways you can walk. And you will remember that we said the key word in Genesis is walk, where you walk with God. That's what Abraham did, and that's what God wants me to do, to walk with him, to walk in the Spirit. I'll either walk in the Spirit or I'll walk in my own way, which is the flesh. Now look at verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh, those who live their way, set their minds, and there is that verb, phroneo, they think the way 
the flesh thinks. They set their minds on the, on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, to think according to the flesh is death. Did you hear that? That's a severe penalty, isn't it, for me having my way? I want to get back to that, if I can, before we're through. You know it isn't a penalty. It's a choice. If I choose my way, I choose the consequences of my way. God doesn't inflict the consequences on me. I inflict the consequences on myself. When I make the choice, I choose the consequences. And there is no life in me, and so when I live my way, I choose death. And it's inevitable. But you see, all life is in God. And when I choose his way, I choose life. And I get life because I've chosen him. And I get death because I chose me. You know, God never sends anybody to hell. God never drops that kind of thing. He's a God of love. We choose our destiny and then we blame him because we made the choice when we turned our back upon life. Now notice, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot, but those who are in the flesh and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So you come down and you find him saying, So then, brethren, we're debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, if you look at that wonderful passage in Galatians where he lists the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, you will find that Paul in Galatians 5.21, at the end of the passage on the works of the flesh, says, but those who do those things will not inherit the kingdom of God because they've chosen a path that takes them away from the kingdom of God. You know, uh, that's incredibly simple and obvious, but we obfuscate that. You know, if there is a source of light here and all light comes from that source and I turn my back on it, should I be shocked that shadows begin to fall across my path? I've produced them myself. And if I keep walking, Jesus said, if I keep walking in my path, do you know what the end of it is according to Jesus? It is outer darkness. And what is outer darkness? It is when you've reached the realm where there's no light left. And that is Jesus' understanding of hell. You simply have turned your direction from him and his way because he is the source of light and you've turned to darkness and so now, that same thing Paul is saying, that's true about life. He is the source of life. And when you turn this way instead of to him and choose our path, then we have chosen the consequences that come with it. Now, uh, you know, the Bible lists these very separately as if they never come mixed. Now, for a long time, that was a problem for me because I found for me they were very mixed. I found Christ had come into my heart and I understood something of that, but I found there was something inside me that wanted my way too. And so I talked, started that first morning talking about I found a recalcitrance within me that when Christ pushed, you know, I resisted and wanted my way. 
and I knew very well that God had done something redemptive in my life, but I knew there was something more redemptive that needed to be done. Now, one day I found that uh, there is a passage in the Bible that talks about that. It's in the Corinthian letter. Paul is writing to the Corinthian Christians, and he says, uh, I want to tell you something I know about you. I'm your father. I'm the one who led you to Christ. I was there when you got converted. Now, he said, I've heard about what's taking place in your midst. So in chapter 3 of the first epistles of the Corinthians, he says, Brethren, I could not address you as men of the Spirit, but as men of the flesh, as babes in Christ. Isn't that interesting? They're in Christ, but they're listed as men of the flesh. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even yet you are not ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is, what is the evidence that you're of the flesh? There is jealousy among you and strife. If they are there, are you not of the flesh? Are you not behaving like ordinary men? Now, you will notice that Paul, when he writes to the Galatians, takes jealousy and strife, or jealousy and uh, envy, jealousy and quarreling. He takes these and says, lists them as fruit of the flesh, not of the spirit. Because you see, the flesh wants my way, and it wants my way to be what I want, and I look at you. And God's given you something he hasn't given me. You may be better looking. You may have a better boyfriend. You may make better grades. You may come from a better family. You may have a richer heritage one way or another. I may have a lisp. I may have a hair lip. I may be bald. But you can look at other people and you say, Lord, why am I not like that? And then you begin to fight with God over what he's given to you. And you see, you want something and that makes you discontent. Do you know the most dangerous state in the world is discontent with God? You remember the talk that I've learned in whatsoever state I am to be content. Because I take everything that comes from his hand because I know he's good and he will use it for his glory. Or else, the quarreling, the strife. If I understand what's taking place here, it's that striving spirit that I want more than I've got, and so I'm going to go after it, that pushy, grassy part. And so we put our hands into our lives instead of letting him run them. And Paul says, so I wrote, I cannot write to you in your Christian church. As a spiritual group, I have to write to you as a fleshly, sarkikah group, is the Greek. Now, uh, is that really a biblical picture that you can be a Christian, you can be a believer, and you can still be living, doing things your way instead of his? I want to tell you, I want to use an interesting story tonight. You know, I came out of a very liberal background where nobody you know, nobody believed the Scripture was the inspired Word of God. And when I was converted, I uh, began to say, wait a minute, yes, this is not an ordinary religious book. It's different from the Quran. And so uh, I began reading the Bible, you know, and I wanted to prove to them that it was the Holy Word of God, the infallible Word of God. And so uh, as I uh, went into that and began to read, 
to my shock, I found things in the Bible I wish weren't there. I remember when I was a young pastor, I'd ask my young people to read the life of Joseph. And I thought, why near the sun did God put that 38th chapter in there in the middle? He could have put it at 37 and begun Joseph at 38, and you wouldn't have that horrible story of the immorality of Judah with his daughter-in-law. But there it is. Now, there are other chapters in the Bible, you know, that I sweated and wished. I wish the whole book of Leviticus weren't there when I was 16. There are a lot of things in the Bible I wish weren't there. But, you know, one of the stories that I would have left out was the story of Hagar and Ishmael. You remember Abraham? He's a model for us all. New Testament doesn't pick out one of the apostles, doesn't pick out one of the prophets, doesn't pick out David, doesn't pick out Moses, goes all the way back and picks out Abraham as the typical, as the model person, the man who saves, the man who's justified. And so I begin reading about he met God. God came to him and he began to follow and walk with him. And God said, I'm going to do great things in your life. You're elect, you're chosen, you're special. You will have a son. That son will uh, give you progeny. They will become a family. That family will become a nation. To that nation I will give real estate. And out of that nation will come a seed that will be the blessing of the world. Abraham stood tall. Well, that's wonderful. And so he waited. He was 75 when God told him that. And you remember Sarah was 65. And they waited 10 years. Now listen to this possible conversation. I'm using my imagination, but hold on. After 10 years, Sarah looks over at Abe and says, Abe, you know you put God on an awful spot. You told everybody in this country that we're going to have a son. And that's been 10 years. Don't you think we ought to help God out? Now you be careful and watch when anybody wants to help God out. She said, uh, it's a normal custom here. It's the legal thing to do. In fact, it is my moral obligation. It is the wife's business if she can't produce a son in Babylon under Babylonian law. Read Hamurapi's Code. It's my obligation to give you one of my handmaids. And she'll bear a son, and according to our law, he will be my child. And we'll be able to fulfill the purposes of God so the whole world can be blessed. And Abe said, well, I don't know whether I want to do that or not. And Sarah says, well, let me ask you a question, Abe. When God told you you were going to have a son, did he really mention me? And Abe scratched his head and thought a little while and said, you know, that's funny. I don't believe any time he ever mentioned that I was going to have a son, he mentioned you. And she said, well, that makes it very clear, doesn't it? We will do what the customs of this country. You will notice that Genesis does not have a word of condemnation for this. She says, clear what we should do. So he gives hate. She gives Hagar to him. And they have a son. Hagar. Ishmael is born. Now the interesting thing is that Ishmael gave Abraham a son. And Ishmael had 12 sons. So Ishmael gave Abraham a family. 
And God gave Ishmael and his sons real estate. And they had land. And God made them kingdoms. And there were kings in Ishmael's heritage. Did you know that Abraham got everything through Hagar that he got through Sarah except for one thing? And that was the same. I don't know about anybody else, but I want to tell you where I am. I think the reason that chapter is in the Bible is to let me know that the flesh profits nothing except trouble. Abraham got a lot more through Ishmael than he did through Isaac except for Christ. Now I want to say I think that's a parable of what happens with many of us. You know, we can do the work of God in our way. We're going to serve him. We're going to do it. I want to serve him. And we do his work in our way. And what do we get out of it? Conflict, envy, strife, controversy. I suspect the 20th century has seen more of that than any century in Christian history. I was interested in a study done. You know how they interview everybody. And they interviewed them on how various professions in America were respected. And listed in those professions from doctor, lawyer, congressman, so on, so down, they had included evangelists and prostitutes. And do you know where the evangelist was listed? Just one peg above the prostitute in the late 20th century in Christian America. And you know why? It's because of the kingdoms of our TV evangelists. I'm not their judge, but I'm just telling you what we had. We had kingdoms built, incredible kingdoms, and reproach was brought on the name of Christ. And do you know a substantial chunk of it was brought in the name of the Holy Spirit? I have no question about these men being Christians. But it's a whale of a lot of the flesh. And the flesh profits nothing. Now one of the reasons I can say that is because I've been there. When I was in the pastorate, I found that there were times when my congregation would begin to come apart and sort of disintegrate. And I'd look to find out the reason. And I'd found because it had come a division in my heart. And I was doing some things in my way instead of finding his way. Now I want to say seeing that has brought me to the place where I don't live by Gallup polls anymore. And don't live by numbers. Because the scripture teaches that it is the hope of the world. It's not in the numbers. It's in the remnant. And it's purity. Do you know that God would rather have a handful of holy, sanctified, spirit-filled people than multiplied millions who talk about it? And so Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, I worry about you. 
because you're still carnal. Now, the interesting thing is that uh, Hagar and Ishmael didn't bring redemption, but it came through Isaac. Now, how did it come through Isaac? You know the story, and so there's no need for me to draw it out. But you will remember the day came when God looked at Abraham and said, Abe, I want you to take your son and sacrifice him to me. Now, uh, I'll never forget the first time I read that in the Hebrew. Here God is saying to Abraham, I want you to take your son and sacrifice him to me. Do you know who that son was? He was his pride and his joy. Do you know what Abe could have done more easily than sacrifice Abraham was to sacrifice himself? Well, God said, Abe, it's not you who wants your son. But Isaac was not only his pride and joy, Isaac was his hope of progeny and the future. Now, you're concerned about the future. You want to be very careful you get the right future. That's one of the battles you will fight with God. If you'll decide, you'll tend to decide what your future ought to be, and he'll say, no, that's not what I'm thinking about. And then the battle comes. So he represented Abraham's future. But more than that, Abraham knew that he represented the hope of the world. And God looks at Abe and says, I want you to kill him. Now, uh, you know what the Hebrew text says? It says God told him. The next line begins with this expression. Never forget it. Vayash came. And do you know what it means? And he arose early in the morning. Isn't that astounding? Now, I don't know what happened between the time God told him and early in the morning. I'm sure he had his Gethsemane. But somewhere between the speaking of God and early in the morning, Abe said, I don't fight with him. I can't see it, don't understand. But I know I can't afford to disobey him. And so he took his son and started out toward the mountain to sacrifice him. And you will remember that he put him on the altar, bound him, put the wood on him, was ready to stab him and light the fire, and God stopped him. Now, you know, uh, we say, how mean can God get? Don't we? Is he going to demand everything? Is he going to destroy all my hope? How mean can he get? Did you know, as I read that, I was thinking about that. And suddenly I thought I heard a conversation. Not between Abraham and Isaac, but between the first person of the Blessed Trinity and the second person of the Blessed Trinity. And 
the eternal Son of God said to the first person of the Blessed Trinity, Father, this is not the last time we're coming to this mountaintop, is it? And the Father looked at the eternal Son and said, No, Son, this is not the last time we're coming to this mountaintop. And the Son said, Father, now the next time we come, it's not going to be one of them that's on that altar, is it? And the eternal Father looked at the Son and said, No, Son, the next time we come here, it's not going to be one of them that's on that altar. It's going to be one of us. And the eternal Son said, It's going to be I, isn't it? And the Father said, Yes, Son, it's going to be you. And I thought I heard the eternal Son say, Father, when they get ready to drive those nails, spikes into my hand and that spear in my side. Are you going to do like you did today when you said to Abraham, don't touch the lad and you stopped his hand in midair? And I thought I heard the eternal father saying, no son, we never asked them to do anything that we haven't done before them. In fact, we don't even ask them to do anything in symbol that we're not ready to do in reality. And so God stopped Abraham and we got Jesus. It is very safe for you to give whatever your eyes are to or whatever your will is, it's very safe for you to give your will to God. Because he's not in the business of blighting or cursing or depriving. He's in the business of saving, redeeming, fulfilling. And when you lose your life, you'll find it. Now, have you ever wondered how Abraham felt after that? I don't know the trauma that was in him as he went up the mountain. But can you imagine the joy that was in him when he came down? I think he said, I'm clean. I haven't held my best back for my friend. I've given him the best I've got. I'm clean. wonder how Isaac felt. Isaac said, I'll tell you one thing about my dad. He went all the way. Don't you know there was a different relationship between them afterwards? I'll tell you something. When you come to the place where you say, Lord, it's all yours, you'll be free in a way you've never been before. And you can look God in the face and smile and say, I did it. <laughs> now, how do you do it? You don't do it in your strength. It's only his grace that can enable you to take your hands off your life. And in terror and panic, say, I don't know what you're going to do with it but I'm more afraid to keep it than I am to let you have it. That's how noble we are, isn't it? <laughs> but at least that's better than the other way. And the funny thing is when you say, I know it's better to let you have it than to lose it, than to keep it. I don't know what will happen to it if I keep it, but I know, I trust you, in some measure, you'll begin to find, ah, that's deliverance, that's freedom. You know, uh, it's the spirit that sets you free.
And the price for the fullness of the Spirit is exactly that. We sang the other night a hymn written by Salvation Army. Spirit of eternal love. You notice what he calls the Spirit? Spirit of eternal love. Guide me or I blindly road. Give me your mind. Let me think your will. Set my heart on things above. You draw me after thee. Earthly things are paltry show. Phantom charms, they come and go. Give me constantly to know fellowship with you. Now listen to this. Come, O Spirit, take control. You know what a spirit-filled Christian is? It's a Christian in whose life the Spirit controls. Where the fires of passion roll, let the yearnings of my soul center all in thee. Call into thy fold of peace thoughts that seek forbidden ways. Come and order all my days. Hide my life in thee. But hear this. Thus supported even I, knowing thee forever and I, shall attain that deepest joy living unto thee. Listen. No distracting thought within, no surviving hidden sin. He's laid it open, and he's cleansed the whole thing. Thus shall heaven indeed begin, here and now in me. Now I want to say conversion didn't do that for me. And it didn't do it for the Corinthians. And it didn't do it for the Philippians. And it didn't do it for Abraham. And I doubt if it did it for you. And that's the reason this institution speaks of the deeper experience of grace. Where the Spirit of God comes in and cleanses both. Now the man who wrote that was a Salvation Army officer who became a general in the army. He was their poet. He was uh, the captain of the Central Division in downtown London that had 50, I think it was 57, 58 corps in it. You know what a corps is. It's like a congregation. They were having a great time working together. The uh, Spirit of God blessed and they had, I think it was 400 conversions and new soldiers added that year. Every revival was taking place. Some of his friends came to him and said, Captain, the higher-ups are going to split our division. That's going to stop this great work. And Orsburn said, well, if they decide to do that, that's their business. I'll never fight them. Oh, they said, you ought to, because God is at work, and if you split our division, it'll stop it. He said the day came when the general or the commissioner and the one under him came to see me and sat down. And he said, it's great what they're doing and what what what's happening in your, your region, district, so we're going to split it and make two. And he said, you know, suddenly I had an impulse. And I began to fight. And I said, no, you, you mustn't do that. And I began to seek what I wanted. And he said, after the conversation was over, I knew I had grieved the spirit now listen, this is not my word. He said, and when the Spirit grieves, the Spirit 
leave. I'll never forget it. He thundered it. When the spirit grieves, the spirit leaves. Now he said, you may challenge that, but I know what the next few months were like. I went through all the motions. I did all the messages. I did all the service. I did all the good works. But there was an emptiness in me and a sterility. He said, in the goodness of God one day, he said, I was running for a, a bus. And he said, as I ran, he said, I jumped for it and missed it. And I hurt myself and was badly injured. They put me in the hospital. And then they put me in a home where I was to spend several weeks recovering. And I lay there in the emptiness and the loneliness of my own soul. He said, one day in that loneliness, I heard in the room next to me some Salvation Army officers singing a hymn. And he said, as they sang, I lifted up my heart and repented. And he came back. And he wrote this. Savior, listen, wish I had it on a screen for you. I wish you could memorize it. I wish I could say it so it would be ingrained in your memory. Savior, if my feet have fallen, faltered, if my feet have faltered on the pathway of the cross, if my purposes have altered, do you hear the theology in that? Savior, if my feet have faltered on the pathway of the cross, if my purposes have altered, and I'm seeking my way instead of yours. Savior, if my feet have faltered on the pathway of the cross, if my purposes have altered, and the gold be mixed with dross, Oh, forbid me not thy service. Here I've lost it. Anyway, he ended pleading with God to keep him in his service. Then he says, pass me through a sterner cleansing, if I may yet give you joy. Pass me through a sterner cleansing, if I may yet give you joy. You know, the key to the spirit-filled life is that you don't grieve him. It's not signs and wonders he gives. Did you know that the disciples probably cast out more devils and performed more miracles before Pentecost than they did after Pentecost? The key to the spirit-filled life is that you don't grieve him. You let him reign. And when you let him reign, you find great joy and cleanness and intimacy with God. Now, you know, I was started tonight in this place telling you that little story about Sam Shoemaker and princes. He looked at those Princetonians and said, you princes of privilege. Are you aware that we are princes of privilege? Princes and princesses? And that we know what I preached about tonight is possible? 
Did you know that the most of the evangelical world doesn't know that? And some of them who've heard it don't believe it. But you have the privilege of knowing. And you don't have to live all your life producing Ishmael. You can live your life producing Isaac. And what a difference. I read a story years ago about a kid who was down for vacation, summertime on the seashore. Loved to play in the sand. Great imagination. So he spent the afternoon building a medieval city with its castle, its moats, its bridges, its walls, built the whole thing. Lost all track of time. He was not aware that the sun was setting, the shadows were lengthening, and the tide was coming in. Suddenly his uh, lostness in his project was interrupted. He heard his older brother's voice, and he looked up and was standing on the bluff, calling Bud, mother's call for supper. And he stood up, and as he stood he noticed that the tide had come almost to his toes. And at that point, there was a wave, a gust of wind caught one and pushed it in. And as he took a step away to head toward the bluff, he looked back, and that wave swept over his afternoon's total activity. And the whole thing was washed away with one wave. You know the only thing that's going to stand in eternity is what he does, not what you and I do. It's not going to be the Ishmael's, it's going to be the Isaac. Because you see, Isaac was a work of God. Abraham and Sarah could produce Ishmael, but only God could produce Isaac. And only God could give us Jesus. Now God wants to take your life and do in it what only God can do. But for him to be able to do it, he's got to get your hands off so that he's free. Now, do you find sometimes you're clutching, you're grabbing on? I don't know about anybody else, but I came to the point where I said, Lord, I can't turn loose. I'm frozen. Can you break me loose? He said, if you let me crack your knuckles, I can. And he started. But he never started until I said, crack them, Lord. Break me free from me. And then was when the freedom came. And do you know he can do it for you? And that's fullness of joy. That's the fullness of the blessing of Pentecost. And if you let it happen in your life, you know what your life will be? It'll be a story of what he can do. And if you don't, It'll be a story of what you can do.